Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Inglorious Empires from our 2018 programme. Indian MP, former diplomat, contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek International and Time, and the author of 16 books that range across history, culture, literature and politics, Shashi Tharoor has achieved rock star status both in India and abroad. He has described India as not an underdeveloped country, but rather, in the context of its history and cultural heritage, a highly developed one in an advanced state of decay. In one of Tarawa's latest books, Inglorious Empire, What the British Did to India, he tackles the concept of empire and its effect post-1947. He speaks in a wide-ranging conversation supported by the Asia New Zealand Foundation with Michael Williams. We hope you enjoy it. See, now I want a cushion on my chair. This is envy. That's a very unattractive way to start a session. Well, you know, a good batsman always needs his pads when he's facing up to a formidable <laughs> demon bowler. That's, I've told you about expectation management. I think it's, it's better to go in low. My name is Michael Williams. I'm the director of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, Australia. And it is thrilling to be here at this Auckland Writers' Festival event with Dr. Shashi Tharoor. What an extraordinary guest to have here on the stage. Give him a big round of applause before we get started. I'm also uh, keen to acknowledge Asia New Zealand, the Asia New Zealand Foundation, who supported Shashi's appearances here uh, at the Auckland Writers' Festival and elsewhere in New Zealand. Um, we're going to have a conversation. I think you're vaguely across the details of how these things work. We are going to invite you to join us in it uh, with a bit of time to go. So I'm telling you this now so you can start to compose your erudite, precise, considered questions. I find if I tell you with like seconds to go, I get blank faces, and no one wants that. So uh, limber up, your moment will come. But in the meantime, we're going to chat a little bit, and we're going to chat across what is, by any measure, an extraordinary career, um, with perhaps, as the title would suggest, a particular focus on this book, Inglorious Empire, What the British Did to India. And that idea of what the British did to India is vitally important. Uh, before we go on, I will say that uh, Dr. Thoreau served for 29 years at the UN, culminating as Under Secretary General. He's a Congress MP in India. He's the author of 16 books and has won numerous literary awards, including a Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Uh, Dr. Thoreau has a PhD from the Fletcher School and was named by the World Economic Forum in Davos in 1998 as a global leader of tomorrow. But tomorrow has come and gone, mate. Yes. <laughs> well, at least it came. I mean, there's a reasonable chance you're a global leader and it was never going to come. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but you've had your moment. I would like uh, to kick things off. I'd like you to take us to the Oxford Union in May of 2015, because that is the genesis of this book. And um, it was a, a moment. It really was quite amazing, because I was actually on my way to the Hay Festival of Literature, which is the reason I was in the UK. Uh, they asked me to participate in an Oxford Union debate uh, on the topic they had chosen, the students. Um, Britain owes reparations to her former colonies. Now, I'm actually not a big reparations guy, but I thought it would be an excellent opportunity to speak about uh, what had become increasingly unfashionable to believe that Britain had done enormous damage to her colonies. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll speak uh, in favor of the motion. 
And um, I trotted along. Uh, the debate was a lot of fun. Uh, the way they do it, they have a student on each side and then they have outside speakers. So there were eminent white-haired historians uh, arguing the merits of the British Empire. And on my side was a Jamaican high commissioner and uh, an East African student and me. And, so, and we, we, we had a wonderful time. We uh, won the debate so handily that the reception afterwards was delayed by half an hour because everyone was filing into the yes lobby, you know, the, the way these things work. But anyway, at the end of it all, I cheerfully forgot about it, went off to hey. And about three weeks later, they uh, put this thing, the video of the debate, on the internet. Um, and for some reason, they had done each speaker separately. So since I got a video of myself speaking for eight minutes or whatever it was on this topic, I put it on my Twitter account and then watched in astonishment as it went viral. And within 24 hours, three million people had downloaded it. And um, I was, for the next few months, encountering strangers who knew of me only through that speech, students who'd been watching it on some sort of endless loop in their schools, um, a college, a university had done a day-long seminar on it. It was quite extraordinary. It touched some sort of nerve amongst Indians, both in India and abroad. And um, my publisher immediately rang me and said, you've got to make a book out of this. And I said, don't be silly, everyone knows this stuff already. And he said, no, they don't, because if they did, your speech wouldn't have gone viral. So having been persuaded by the logic of that, I rationally consented to write this book and then found myself immersed in far more research than an eight-minute speech needed. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I've got a book which seems to have at least made a point and um, has got the goat of some of the people I particularly targeted. I, uh, <laughs> that is exactly the thing I was going to point towards, was the getting of the goat. Because it, after a distinguished career as a diplomat, where, and you've even reflected on this in some of your other books, there are things you wouldn't write about, there are things you wouldn't say, because when your employer is the United Nations, this is not something you can do. And watching that YouTube video, uh, the original version, not one of the ones with remixed with music underneath it or anything else equally exciting, watching you in that, you're clearly having fun, but you're also clearly having fun because it's unbridled. You're not holding back things that perhaps the diplomat would never have said. That's true, but don't forget, I'd already come into Indian politics six years previously, and holding back is never a good thing <laughs> in Indian politics, so I'd had practice at, uh, at, at giving as good as I, as I got. But yes, you're right, this was, this was pretty, but it was also, you know, the atmosphere of a student debate. Um, I mean, I remember my student debating days. One never held back. But it was also always taken in a certain spirit. Writing a book becomes a different exercise. I structured the book as an argument and not as a narrative. So to that degree, it is like a debate. I'm making a series of debating points. But at the same time, uh, I, 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 I was trying to be a little more sober than perhaps you know, I could be um, on, on the floor of the Oxford Union, where I could say some somewhat wicked things and get away with them. The there's lots I want to pick up on that, but I can't quite go past the question of your own student debating. Your parents were very uh, relaxed in the way they approached their ambition for you, but your father steered you and drove you in particular in the area of debating. You say that some of your earliest debates, he wrote the speeches for you, is that oh, right? When I was about eight years old, yeah. yes, he did. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't implying it more recently, just to be clear. <laughs> Actually, he's a terrific guy, but I think he would have been pretty appalled by some of the things he would have heard me saying later in his life. I lost him, unfortunately, 25 years ago. So, um, 
Um, he, he had absolutely no responsibility for my excesses at Oxford. But uh, uh, no, I mean, the thing is that um, I think it's partly because though he was a, a very gregarious human being, a wonderful people person, the kind of person who, when he walked into a room, people crowded around him. Uh, and my own instinct as a, as a child was a little more introverted. I was happiest curling up with a book in a corner. Um, he wanted to be, me to snap out of that. So he kind of forced me into, into speech contests and elocution, which we still had in school and in Bombay, and, and debating. And I must say that um, I'm eternally grateful to him, as I've often said to my own children, the one skill that stands you in good stead in whatever profession you do is an ability to speak and communicate what you believe or what you think to an audience. It can be an audience of one, it can be an audience of 1,700 or whatever you all are, hello. But the fact is that it's still something that in whatever context you can use. So I think my dad did the right thing. He was never a terrific public speaker himself, but he appreciated the value of words. And he made sure that I was able to deliver them with something approaching fluency. He was a newspaper man, yes? He was on the wrong side of the newspaper business. He was on the managerial side. Um, he was advertisement. They're the only ones left, I mean, really. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he was, um, he was um, uh, the, the head of the London office of an Indian newspaper called The Statesman uh, at a time when all the managers in India were Englishmen. So he was waiting for a... Uh, one of the English went to retire so he could go back to India, which is why I was born in London. But then uh, we went back to India when I was about two and a half, and I grew up all over India. And, uh, and he, he, he stayed in the newspaper business all his life. In fact, at one point, I remember in, uh, there's an annual match between the management and editorial in the Statesman, a cricket match. And uh, somebody fell ill or whatever, and I'd gone to watch with Dad, and I was roped into playing for the management side. Uh, when I was already actually freelancing a fair bit uh, in the Indian media. And I managed to take a few wickets, including a rather spectacular cotton ball. And there was a snarky little piece in the paper the next day saying, by rights, he should have been playing for editorial. <laughs> <laughs> You're a ringer on the wrong side of things. Well, this is also a long time ago, alas. <laughs> the, um, so your parents gave you a very kind of liberal upbringing. They, were, they let you be free to make your own decisions. Your father encouraged you out of an introversion. Did that partly come about? I understand you had very bad asthma as a child, so you couldn't pursue your own love of cricket uh, quite as much as you otherwise might have. That's right. Yeah, I was a, I was a pretty, pretty grim asthmatic. I, I, uh, I think we, we, when we moved to India, I was two and a half, and I think somehow, having been born and brought up in that awful climate the British call theirs. Uh, I, I came to India and, and, and my system sort of reacted rather badly to the new environment and I was uh, an extremely severe asthmatic throughout my childhood. And those are the days before inhalers and so on where one was taking very powerful tablets and, and otherwise having to end up sitting up all night trying to stay awake. It, it, it made a reader out of me for one thing because you, know, you can't sleep and you can't play and you can't do very much else. Um, the one thing you can do to divert your mind from your miserable inability to read properly is to read. And so I, I read indiscriminately, copiously, and fast. Mm. And I think that, that certainly helped. Um, how, for how long indiscriminately? Like, at what point did you start to refine your tastes? Because I know that the voracious child... Oh, the indiscriminate continued well into my teens. Largely because, you know, first of all, as a child, 
I rapidly exhausted the age-appropriate books. I mean, how many could your parents get you? And because I read fast, I mean, they would sometimes take me to a library and I'd finish the book I'd borrowed in the car on the way home in Bombay traffic. So I would read their books, and many of which I couldn't understand, but some of which I understood more than perhaps other children of my age were doing. And, um, and I should, should stress that even in uh, Bombay of the 60s, there was no television. And of course, computers and mobile phones and Nintendo weren't even a gleam in their inventor's eyes. So books were it. I mean, th that was all I could do. If I wasn't reading them, I was playing book cricket with them, which is a sport that has sadly fallen into disuse, where you make up imaginary teams and open the pages of a fat volume and look at the last digit of the page number, and that's the score off that particular ball. <laughs> it, it was a terrific sport. I, I am completely confident if we invited this theater of people to play book cricket now, it would, it would go banana. Someone go get the fattest book you can from the bookshop. We're going to play <laughs> That's it. right. Just to play book cricket. What, a, what an amazing imaginative world. But it led to writing for you very early. I understand your first published story was at the age of 10, and it was called Operation Bellows, and it was inspired by the Biggles books. That's right. Now, Operation Bellows is actually not my first published story. I had a story before that. Um, in, a, in the Sunday edition of an Indian newspaper. I'm sorry to but imply you were so lazy. That, that, I'm sorry to imply you were so lazy that you waited till 10. Till 10. <laughs> I was, I, that too is when I was 10. But this uh, Operation Bellows uh, was my attempt at a novel, believe it or not. Uh, I mean, with hindsight, I realized it wasn't long enough or good enough to be called anything. But uh, I think the editor uh, was a rather benign Englishman. Um, decided that there was something quite astonishing about this 10-year-old churning out, you know, war fables <laughs> featuring an Anglo-Indian fighter pilot inspired by uh, the Biggles books. And so um, he serialized um, this thing in six parts. And the first part appeared um, uh, the week before my 11th birthday. So I just made it under the 11 barrier. And, you know, the thing is, as a child, I was writing, obviously, in a very imitative fashion about things similar to what I was reading. So when I was six and I wrote my first handwritten short story, um, it was entirely in Blyton-esque, you know, because she had all her famous five. Famous five, Merck, yeah. So I had my six solvers, and they were going off to Indian villages to solve mysteries in much the way in which these English kids were going off to English villages. Sadly, um, those stories are lost forever, and they were never published. But my dad got them typed up and circulated them to friends. And it helped me start to believe in the possibility of myself as a writer, which is indeed what then made the more serious writing possible at the time. I'm fascinated in that hybrid of cultures going on in there. It's very much an English tradition you're clearly reading in. You know, it, it's Blyton, it's Biggles, it's, and yet you're applying a kind of Indian lens to it. How conscious was that? How much were you aware of these two kind of heritages, the place of your birth and the place of your parents and your childhood? You know, it, 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 it's, it's a very, very um, uh, interesting contradiction we were, uh, the people like me at that time were inhabiting. I was born after independence. We didn't have too many Englishmen around or women uh, to cast their judgmental eye on our use of their language. But there we were in Montessori singing, you know, uh, about Santa Claus and his sleigh riding through the snow. And we'd never seen snow in our lives and you know, could barely imagine a sleigh, except, of course, from the, um, from the illustrations. And, and at, at some point, it was difficult not to be conscious of the incongruity of it all. Um, but it took a while to move, because those were the children's books available. 
Uh, this is not true of today's Indian children, who have a vast array of books in every Indian language and English featuring Indian characters, Indian myths, Indian stories, Indian uh, adventures, everything. I mean, there isn't a genre of children's writing that isn't represented today in India. That was simply not true when I was a child. Mm. So in the late 50s, early 60s, you either didn't read or you read the, what the Brits had left behind, as it were. And my mother, uh, when I was a baby, was reading the Noddy books out to me. And she jokes that she read them so badly that I want to be able to read myself so I could snatch the books from her and, and do that. So I was, I, was, I was a precocious reader. I started around two and a half or three. And then thereafter, these were what one read. But living in India, one filtered, if you like, those experiences through the sensibility of, of, of Indians. I love the idea that having Noddy read to you badly has led ultimately to your anger at the British Empire. <laughs> like that, that that's the trajectory, is you're like, big ears, no, I, I'm just unhappy. Way, but yes, I suppose yeah, no, it's, it, it, it was always going to happen that way. I, one of your, uh, in an interview <laughs> I heard with you, uh, one of your flights of uh, wonderful mischief-making rhetoric referred to Rudyard Kipling as that flatulent voice of Victorian imperialism. Wasn't he just? Which I thought was like, it's the perfect description. But I, uh, you know, that awareness, that being steeped in a particular educational tradition that you now understand, and in the process of writing this book and through your career, you increasingly understand is not just inadequate, it's damaging as an educational person. Yes, I mean, there's been an awful lot of growing up that one has to do. Uh, certainly, I wouldn't pretend to have acquired sort of the, the sensibility I have today just by growing up and studying in India. It took a while of travel, of learning, of reading, uh, and indeed a lot of extraordinary work by other scholars and writers over the years they opened my mind. I mean, it was startling, for example, to discover uh, from the work of Gauri Vishwanathan that, at Columbia University in New York that the study of English literature as a subject first happened in the world, not in England, but in India, because the British wanted to overawe the Indians with the majesty of their literature. And so this became an academic subject for the first time. In England, at Oxford and Cambridge, your literature was the classics. It was Latin and Greek. It wasn't you know, Shelley and Wordsworth, but they had to inflict Shelley and Wordsworth on us. So you have these little, little Indian schoolgirls in the 19th century writing poems to daffodils, and we don't have daffodils in India, but that's how Indian literature and English was born. Isn't that just the way of colonialism? Like, isn't that the way it rolls out? I mean, I don't know what it's like in New Zealand. There's an Australian, I'm loath to make a generalization, but in Australia, today, we might struggle to get this size of audience out to see you because they're at home reading stories about the royal wedding. <laughs> like, or, or watching it, right? Or watching it, it. yeah, yes. I think right now, maybe. The, the weird colonial throwback thing, you know, where we're maybe two generations in Australia on from people referring to England as home yes. still. Um, and that kind of, uh, that nature of that relationship is extraordinary and fraught. And Inglorious Empire is an angry book about that. It's an angry book about the way in which uh, the damage of the colonial project is whitewashed. That's right. And you know, some of the anger comes from the revisionism of the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, there was this entire thing. I suppose Neil Ferguson is the poster child for that. Um, uh, but, but there were others, Lawrence James, Andrew Roberts. They've been, they've been half a dozen best-selling writers, highly praised by the reviewers. Uh, who, in the first decade of the 21st century, chose to whitewash the sins of empire and exalt it as some sort of grand forerunner of globalization, 
uh, or as Ferguson put it, a jolly good thing with a J, capital J, G, and T. Uh, and, and this um, was beginning to get my good. It became almost the new accepted wisdom, except, of course, in the groves of academia, where, where, where I think scholars knew what the realities were because they were delving into them in greater depth and detail than some of the best-selling popular historians were. But I felt it necessary to write a popular history that answered them back. And do like you so invested in this as a rebuttal as your publisher that in the, in the selected quotes in the front of the uh, current edition of Inglorious Empire, they single out a welcome and antidote to the nauseating righteousness and condescension peddled by Neil Ferguson in his 2003 book Oh, I didn't know Empire. that. My gosh, I hadn't and seen And the next that. one, tear up your copies of Ferguson's neoliberal mind rot and get angry like Thoreau. <laughs> this, this is, you know... Oh, it's a quote from the Irish Times, Michael. Well, what do <laughs> They have no vested interest in this fight. They're completely <laughs> impartial observers. Uh, but that idea of it as an antidote is really interesting. And I want to come back to the point you made about when you gave the speech and it went viral, which was the realisation that this wasn't common knowledge. The realisation that actually, uh, even for your Indian readers and audience, there wasn't a strong awareness of this. And that, that seems quite shocking to me. Am I naive? Well, I, I was like, I said, you know, surely all these people couldn't not have been playing, paying attention in class, you know. This must have been part of their basic education. But it wasn't. And, and I realized that perhaps I had read well beyond the curriculum in school and acquired perhaps more of an insight and more of a point of view than the rather bland way in which our history had been taught um, had left many people with. There was also the fact that in their... Um, you know, it's interesting that the, the independence movement culminated in what was officially called on both sides a transfer of power. It wasn't sort of Britain running away with her tail between her legs, though in fact that's what she did too. There was a, the shambolic original Brexit of 1947 when they partitioned the country in haste and left. Um, but, but transfer of power implied a certain continuity, and nobody in the Indian nationalist leadership wanted there to be any surviving bitterness or rage against Britain. They continued in some ways in their own Anglophile ways and in some other ways by just you know, taking the attitude of, of forgive and forget. Uh, my own view is that one must forgive because hatred is a, a pointless and negative emotion that corrodes the hater, I think, far more than the hated. But while one must forgive, one must not forget. And I think what's important and the reason why I find history so compelling to read and to write is that it's important to remember. It's important to remember, I often say to young people in India, if you uh, don't know where you've come from, how will you appreciate where you're going? And it's, that's part of the, if you like, the justification for dwelling in these things. Not so much one of either anger or revenge in their, uh, for their own sake, because I don't really believe in those. That, yeah. Quite right. I mean, it is, if you look around the world at the tethering of the concepts of truth and reconciliation in any kind of post-conflict space, I think the truth part of it is the really important That's bit, right. and it's the role of the writer, it's the role of the historian. But we seem to have had in India the reconciliation without the truth. Yeah. And so it was important to get some of that truth out. No, that's the Australian way as well. We're big fans of reconciliation without truth. Uh, <laughs> Thank you.
I have discovered that if I bash Australia in Auckland sessions, <laughs> the audience is on side so quickly, it's amazing. Such a safe bet. Um, I am interested though because, I mean, the, the thing about uh, Inglorious Empires is the original title for it was An Era of Darkness, which is an altogether more forbidding framework, I think, than the play. Well, that was the Indian, that was the title I gave the book in India. And, and you know, it had echoes of various things. Uh, the whole notion of darkness, which um, I thought was important because, you know, the British kind of acted as if they were bringing enlightenment, quite literally, uh, to the, to the, um, the dark. Bearing the, the torch and often the sword. Exactly. Uh, and it was also a bit of a dig at a rather celebrated book called an area of darkness, which was Naipaul's takedown of the India he was disillusioned at encountering in the early 60s. Um, and to my mind, um, uh, it, it resonated well in India. Um, the British publishers came up with an alternative title to which I did not object, because their argument was that an era of darkness could be about anything. This says to the British reader exactly what the book is about. So I said, Finding Glorious Empire, that is the title that the Australian edition, the American edition, and so on, have stuck with. And I asked the Indian publishers, do you want to change yours too, so we just have one title around the world? And they said, no, we're very happy with an era of darkness. It's actually been my best-selling title of all time in India, so why complain? <laughs> the part of the argument you frame, and, and we'll get to the kind of horrific violence uh, in a moment, but is about the, um, uh, what was lost. Uh, through the British colonial project, what was stolen even, and it comes back a bit to the debate being around the question of reparations. Um, and you say, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to have misremembered the figures here, but at the beginning of the 18th century, India accounted for, was it a quarter of the? 27% of global GDP in 1700, and as late as 1800, 23% of global GDP. The first number, it was the richest country in the world, but the second number, it was the second richest. And then um, independence, it was down to 3%? 3% and uh, a poster child for third world poverty. The British had left us with 90% of the population living below what we today call the poverty line. So it was, it was a pretty grim transformation. The result of exploitation, of loot, of rapine, of, uh, of maladministration, you name it. But of course, there are others who will disagree. And I've, I've always said that um, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. So Find the facts that will uh, find the facts that will uh, repudiate me, and I'm happy to listen. I think Neil Ferguson's next book is called My Own Facts. So, uh, well, he, he has he, he has written to me promising a savage review. It hasn't appeared yet, but I'm suitably braced. It is waiting for the facts to align. I think is Quite is possibly. the way. But I mean, that's a staggering. That's the kind of illusion from the history books that is only possible if, as has so happened in colonialism, if you pretend that what was there before was not developed, was not a fully sophisticated, developed That's society, right. if, if you engage in a kind of idea of primitivism outside the English uh, project. Um, and you make the point in your book, you can go back as far as Pliny to see the evidence of, of in The highly influence. sophisticated civilization, um, the world's leading exporters of cotton, fine cotton, muslin and linen, for 2,000 years, in fact, at the time the British came, the aristocratic elite of Europe was draping itself in very expensive 
Indian fabrics, uh, the court of Versailles, to prize itself on the getting the best muslins and linens out of India. And there are accounts, which I've cited in the book, of English shopkeepers as late as the 17th and 18th centuries trying to pass off local European-made goods as made in India, because made in India was the, was the cachet, the hallmark of, um, of good quality. Um, it was also a society of merchants, of warriors, of artisans, very sophisticated artisans, weavers. Uh, it had a merchant banking system uh, that rivaled the Bank of England in terms of the amount of money past various hands. This was not some sort of era, I mean, area of darkness. This was a, a very sophisticated uh, society. The British would later justify their depredations in the name of free trade. But in fact, they broke the free trade that India had been thriving on in order to impose their terms of trade, which was to obtain a captive market for British goods. It must be hard not to feel a certain amount of glee at uh, the prospect of post-Brexit Britain coming to India <laughs> it happened. now. The week after my book was published in India, Theresa May, the then newly appointed British Prime Minister, arrived um, on, on her first visit to India in which, apart from the governmental meetings in Delhi, she was to travel to, uh, I think, Bombay, Bangalore, and Hyderabad, if I remember right, to seek investments in her then feared to be faltering post-Brexit economy. And I said, you know, this proves my point. You don't need to revenge yourself upon history. History is its own revenge. <laughs> it, um, is history only its own revenge if people have a knowledge of history? Hmm. Fair point, which is part of part of the reason why they should read my book. <laughs> Only one small part, available in the bookshop afterwards. Uh, and it's excellent for playing uh, cricket with, if you need to, is, is worth knowing. In that case, you need to get the bigger edition. Oh yeah, no, the definitely, the, the pile of 16 books. We're five minutes away from audience questions. I mention this again because I don't want you to embarrass yourselves. Um, I'm sorry if that's an intimidating way to frame it, but I think it's, uh, it's only fair. Apart from the cost, the financial cost of imperialism, though, uh, the lives lost and the sheer weight of violence that you write about in this book was, was shocking to me. It made me realize how little I understood Indian history. Was that something that you always knew, or was the writing of this book, did it uncover massacres, did it uncover no, things I, for you? No, I, I knew the basics, but the more I delved into them, the horror. I mean, when I spoke a couple of nights ago here, I told the story, one of the worst atrocities of the Ra is the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, so I won't repeat that. But one thing I didn't talk about then, which is worth mentioning today, is my realization of the extent to which the famines that absolutely laid India waste were the deliberate result of British colonial policy. Not just land policy and the, 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 the deprivation of the, of the tenants, uh, the, the peasant farmers and the lands they actually tilled, and, and allocating them to landlords and all of that. That's fine, I mean, that happens. There are unjust arrangements in various places, and the British did their fair, unfair share of them. But what was striking was it was deliberate policy to do, based on three principles. Number one, um, if there is a drought and there aren't enough crops, it is absolutely no impediment to buying up whatever crops there are in order to fill the breadbaskets of London, because that's what um, the free market principle teaches you. Um, and if that, as a result, drives up whatever little remains, the price of it, to a point where the starving people can't afford it, too bad, laws of the market. Second, the Malthusian principle. If there are more people trying to live off the land than the land can sustain, then people must die, that's normal, that's fine. 
And third, Victorian fiscal prudence. Thou shall not budget uh, for, for, for charity because charity simply encourages idleness. So the result is that you actually have a policy that caused the loss of life from almost as soon as the British took over Bengal in the 1770s, when there was a horrendous famine that killed six million people, at that point a third of the entire population, right up to the Second World War era when Winston Churchill took deliberate decisions that cost the lives of 4.3 million Bengalis. Throughout that period, 35 million Indians lost their lives totally unnecessarily because of deliberate policy. And when people of conscience tried to help, the British actually threatened them with deportation because charity was disapproved of. When work camps were set up in response to public pressure from England, the rations provided in exchange for work, not, not for idleness, was lower than the rations the Nazis gave the Jewish inmates of Buchenwald before they were sent off to the gas chambers. When Churchill was told by conscience-stricken officials in Calcutta that his policies were killing people and could he please revise his decisions not, for example, to allow ships from Australia to, uh, to unload their wheat when they were docking in Calcutta, but he ordered them to sail on so their, their, their wheat could bolster the, the buffer stocks uh, uh, in the event of a possible future invasion of Greece and Yugoslavia. And, and he actually said, you know, the starvation of any way underfed Bengalis matters much less than that of sturdy Greeks and many other racist comments. And when British officials said, you can't do this, this is, this is wrong, people are dying, the figures are crossing four million, what does he write on the margin of the file? Why hasn't Gandhi died yet? And this is the man the British want us to hail as an apostle of freedom and democracy. I'm sorry it won't wash. For the members of the audience who don't know, your argument when it came to the question of reparations was for a dollar. A well, year. a symbolic one pound a year, I said, for the next 200 years, to keep reminding them of the case for moral atonement rather than... Because, as you say, it's a nonsense to put an actual value on it. How can you put a value on the lives lost? Yeah. So that moral atonement, I mean, you've, you've touched a bit on the response to the book in India, leaving aside the Neil Ferguson's of this world, has there been a response from your British readership to it? The book has done surprisingly well in Britain. Um, and it was interesting that I got some rather interesting reviews from Tories. Uh, Lord Ridley, for example, did a, an entire column in the Times about it. And I met him later and asked, you know, uh, I'm, I'm grateful but surprised, you know, how come a Tory like you says, and he even wrote a sentence to the effect of every Britain should be ashamed of our record in India and so on. And he said, well, as a good conservative, he said, I, I believe we should have traded with you and not conquered you, which I think is entirely a reasonable proposition. Uh, the thing that I'm, I'm trying to push, however, is, uh, as I mentioned a couple of nights ago for those who were here, is an apology. And, and I've suggested the centenary of this awful massacre, uh, which will happen next year, as an opportunity for a member of the royal family, um, sometime after their honeymoon, perhaps, to to show up and, and convey that. Because, you see, moral atonement is what's lacking. You go to London, it's a city of museums full of stolen artifacts, right? I mean, um, there's, there's a wonderful comment by uh, a bewildered Indian saying, why are you proud of displaying what your grandfather stole from mine? You know, but that's what these museums show. They're all chore bazaars. Um, there's a complete lack of self-consciousness 
about the depredations of empire that helped build. I've quoted a, 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 a passage of Walpole, literally riding down the street and counting the number of mansions that were built with money stolen from India. Uh, we have two British prime ministers whose dynasty was established by a diamond purloin from Madras, the Pitt family. Um, and, and, and two British prime ministers came out of that diamond. You know, Not a bad impact on British history, I suppose. Um, if, you, if you look at the, the way in which Britain has built itself up, you'll see nothing of this in British textbooks today. You can do A-levels in history, as I discovered, without learning a line of colonial history. Mm. There is a deliberate historical amnesia that makes it possible for a majority of young people polled in Britain today to say they'd love to have the empire back and that they're proud of it. Do they know what they're proud of? Do they have any sense? We had a British cabinet minister last year saying Britain is the only country that has done nothing to be ashamed of in the 20th century. And it's been one of the most shameful centuries uh, in, in, in modern history. I mean, I think, honestly, uh, the, the record of Britain uh, you know, makes the fewer years of, of Nazi rule or Stalin's rule look mild by comparison. Uh, and of, over far more countries and far more parts of the world. So there's a great deal to be looked at with honesty. And I think if, if Britain would start, I mean, I, I, was, I was so impressed with when the Germans started busing schoolchildren to Dachau to show them what had been done in the name of their ancestors. I think it's time the, Britain, the Brits set up a, a museum to colonialism in London yeah. and, and, and made their children read and understand and study the awful realities of their own country's past. And perhaps fewer statues to the animals that helped the war effort for there England you are. and not to the uh, many Indian lives lost or the... There isn't a single statue of an Indian soldier in Britain, even though a mil more than a million fought under arms in each world war and, and over 150,000 gave their lives to Britain and to the war effort. But there is a statue to the animals that served the Allies, uh, right in the heart of London. So, yeah, it's high time they woke up to how they remember their own past. Mm. Might be time to get some priorities straight. So for you as a serving politician, how do you channel this understanding of history? How do you make it part of your public service, part of how you, it's very clear how you do it as a scholar, as a writer, but how do you do it as a public figure? Well, it's a, it's a helpful reminder within the Indian political space today of what our nationalism ought to be all about, rather than, I'm sorry to say, the, the somewhat petty and chauvinistic and rather bigoted nationalism sought to be propagated by our current ruling party. Um, I don't believe in, in a nationalism that divides us. I want to remind people of what united us, uh, the, the moral righteousness, as it were, of the cause of Indian freedom and the struggle for freedom that culminated with the departure of the British after these 200 inglorious years. Uh, that is, is as far as I want to go. I don't want it today to affect our country's relationship with Britain, which is no longer that of subject and oppressed, it is between two sovereign equals, comparable economies, not in purchasing power parity terms, but in actual dollar terms. We are now equal economies, and we'll overtake the Brits by next year, the way we're growing. So I don't think we should have a chip on our shoulder about that anymore. It's not about today's Britain and today's India. It's about remembering what made us what we are. That question of nationalism, though, is obviously a particularly fraught one for any country, but in contemporary India, do you make a distinction between nationalism and patriotism? Is that a I useful do. concept? I mean, patriotism really is, you know, you love your country because it's yours, because you were born in it or, 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 or born belonging to it. And in and of itself, it's an unexceptionable idea. Nationalism all too often defines itself in relationship to others. And a hostile nationalism, 
uh, a nationalism built on hatred, a nationalism built on jingoism, is not an attractive idea. Um, nationalism against empires more or less has had its day. Decolonization is essentially complete. People have found their freedoms. Now, many petty politicians tend to whip up nationalism within their countries to define a narrower view, uh, often at the expense of some of their own citizens, rather than um, uh, an all-embracing, inclusive idea, which, of course, was easier when you were defining yourself against foreigners. So to that degree, nationalism can be dangerously distorted. Uh, now, it's interesting that Europe is going through a very different phenomenon. They're coming to terms with the onset of plurality in societies that weren't plural. So in Britain, for example, I love this photograph I saw of a bunch of black and brown demonstrators holding up placards reminding the British outside the Houses of Parliament, we are here because you were there, uh, which I think is, <laughs> is something the British need to also remind themselves of, and which, which in a sense is part of the redefinition now of the British nation, partly to embrace the things in Britain did for 200 years outside its shores, or more than 200 years. How much does understanding the cost of those 200 years, though, how much is that integral to contemporary Indian identity? The, the way in which the nation lives, what it means to be an Indian in the 21st century is always inextricably going to be linked to that 200 years. Yes and no. I mean, there are parts of India that in some ways almost are untouched by the colonial experience. There are farmers tilling the soil the way their ancestors did before the British ever came. But certainly to the educated urban Indian elite, we are ineradicably marked by the British colonial experience. The language which I'm speaking to you in and the language in which I wrote this book, the tea I drink, which the British started cultivating in India to save money in, from Chinese, instead of spending it on Chinese tea, uh, the game that I adore, which um, an Indian sociologist rather memorably described. He said, cricket is actually an Indian game accidentally discovered by the British. But <laughs> <laughs> it sort of feels that way. It's so much part of who we are. So it's, it's, you can't get away from, from the, the English influence. And in many ways, it's true to say that uh, the English language opened up a certain intellectual world for us that made possible the critique of the country from which that language came. Mm -hmm. Jawaharlal Nehru wrote a book called The Discovery of India in English. English became his own instrument to discovering his own heritage in his own country. And I think that, that makes it something we simply can't untwist from the strands of our DNA anymore. When your next novel comes out and it's uh, a retelling of Biggles from an Indian perspective, I'm going to remember you said that and I'm going to say, here is the evidence that it can't be unpicked, but nor should it be, that there's something going <laughs> there on here. Uh, Inglorious Empire is dedicated to your sons and you say their love of history equals and knowledge of it exceeds your own. I suspect you're being modest there, but I'm confident that our understanding of it is greatly enhanced by your extraordinary writing and your extraordinary career. Please thank Shashi You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.